Would you like to be happy? Uh, Not just superficially happy, but truly happy. Uh, Surely there's no one who would say no to that. Happiness is the great question confronting mankind. Uh, That's a quote from Martin Lloyd-Jones. The whole world, he says, is longing for happiness. And and don't we see that around us? But Lloyd-Jones goes on, it is tragic to observe the ways in which people are seeking that happiness. But here in the Beatitudes, Jesus pictures for us what true happiness looks like. These sayings are known as the Beatitudes because they start with the word blessed or blessed, which in Latin is beatus, uh, hence Beatitudes. Uh, but, but really we, we could call any statement in the Bible uh, that starts with a blessing a beatitude. Uh, the book of Psalms starts with a beatitude. Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. Uh, we'll, we'll finish today by, by singing Psalm 32. Blessed is the man whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. As we, we've just sang there, the, the longest psalm in the Bible starts with two beatitudes. Uh, So any uh, statement uh, that includes the word blessed, that that declares a blessing, uh, could be called a beatitude. Uh, And so the question is, what is it to be blessed? Well, it's not quite the same as happiness. Uh, Not quite, at least not the way we, we tend to use the word happiness today. Someone has said, in fact, that the word happiness has been devalued. The word blessed and the word happy, they they used to be used more interchangeably. Uh, The Puritan Jeremiah Burroughs wrote a book in the 1600s called The Saint's Happiness. The Saint's Happiness. And that's a book that's all about the Beatitudes. Older Bible versions tend to translate the word blessed as happiness in more places than newer ones. Because blessed and happy used to be used more interchangeably. To be blessed is not always to be smiling. But it is to be truly happy. Blessedness is not so much a feeling but a state, a status. Uh, To be able to to look at your life and say, uh, no matter uh, even how hard things might be at the present moment, to look at your life and say, I am blessed. Another way to think of what something means is to ask what the opposite of it is. So what is the opposite of blessing? Uh, I've even put that as a, as a blank on, on the, the, the outline on the back of your order of service. How would you fill in the blank? Uh, well, well, the opposite of blessing is curse. So to live a, a blessed life is to live a life under God's smile rather than under his frown. And, and it is to live in a way that leads to joy rather than misery. Some of the Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5 may not leave you feeling happy when they occur. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for example. Most of us would rather not be persecuted. 
And yet even in, in that do we, do we read in Acts that the apostles rejoiced that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonour for the name of Jesus. But even if we don't feel that in the moment, the blessed life is the sort of life that you can look back on from your deathbed without regret, without saying, I've wasted it. The Beatitudes are, are in the Bible to tell us that living for ourselves, that living for this world's favour rather than God's favour, that none of these things will bring true happiness. They, they promise so much, but they're like sand that runs through our fingers. Uh, I know some of the boys and girls like playing with sand, uh, whether that's, that's play sand inside or, or real sand outside. Uh, but but if, if you try and, and grab handfuls of sand and carry it somewhere, a lot of it will just fall through your fingers. Uh, and that's like trying to find happiness in, in things this world can give us. It will fall through our fingers, but, but God uh, can give us true happiness. And so to know God's favour, to, to live with a, a sense of his favour brings true happiness. Uh, no matter how hard the particular circumstances of our lives may be at any given point. Uh, so so uh, these Beatitudes will, will be what we're looking at over uh, the next two or three months, God willing. Uh, as we take each one of them in turn, we'll be looking at... at what life lived under God's favour looks like. Uh, my goal today is to introduce these Beatitudes before starting into the first one in two weeks' time after our communion. Um, but it might not be a bad idea to read through all of them before communion, asking ourselves if this picture of the blessed life is our idea of what a blessed life is and considering whether our values match up to the values Jesus, Jesus pronounces in the Beatitudes. But today I want to introduce the Beatitudes as we consider the, the setting, the audience, the preacher and the message of them. So setting, preacher, audience and message. And we start with the setting or, or the background to them. So firstly the setting. The most significant life ever lived is the life of Jesus Christ. That's why in the Bible we have not just one, not two, not three, but four different accounts of his life. Different accounts, not in the sense of contradictory accounts, but complementary, picturing Jesus from different angles, but not picturing a different Jesus. The four gospel accounts, they, they each picture Jesus from a different angle, but they don't picture a different Jesus. And in fact, the, the supposed contradictions that people point to are actually a strength rather than a weakness because they're the sort of things they're the sort of differences you would get if you had four different people gave a statement to the police uh, 
four people could each give uh, statements that were entirely truthful and yet their accounts would focus on different things because they, they saw things unfold from different angles because they considered different things uh, as partic- particularly worth mentioning. If the police took four statements from four different people and they were identical, they would be thinking, well, there's something fishy going on here. Uh, This has been scripted in advance. So four different gospel accounts, which on the face of it may seem to disagree in some small details, but agree on the overall picture is a, a powerful thing. I heard a story recently about a Muslim woman who came into contact with a New Testament professor. Uh, This was in America. I think she was a recent immigrant. Uh, But anyway, she she was objecting to the Bible. She'd come into contact with Christians. They were maybe helping her out in some way. Uh, But she was objecting to the Bible because of the apparent contradictions that, that, that people point to. And I forget the exact details, but basically what this New Testament professor encouraged her to do, he said, look, I, I could sit down with you so, and we could go through these contradictions one by one, but what, what would, I think would be more helpful for you is to go away and, and write down what it is that all the Gospels have in common, and particularly what they say about Jesus. And she did that, and she was converted. So when we come to the Beatitudes... The first thing to say about their setting is that they occur in one of the gospel accounts. Primarily Matthew, though some of them are also in Luke. And the very fact that there are four gospels tells us that the extraordinary life, death and resurrection of Jesus Christ cannot be contained to one book. And of course, as John's gospel ends, if everything written, if everything that Jesus did was written down, the whole world couldn't contain the amount of books uh, that that would be written. Uh, So that is our saviour. As your minister, my, my rough aim, a rough rule of thumb that I have is to try and preach at least something from one of the four gospels each year. Last year, for example, we looked at Jesus' seven I am statements in John's gospel. The, the year before that, we worked our way through the final chapter of Luke's gospel. The year before that, we looked at various encounters people had with Jesus. Uh, the year before that, we looked at the seven signs that Jesus performs in John's gospel. Uh, before that, I preached through the, the whole of Mark's gospel over the course of several years. Uh, we've also just finished looking at Jesus' seven sayings from the cross uh, while we've celebrated the Lord's Supper. Uh, so th- there's no rule that says a minister should preach something from the Gospels every year, but, but it, it kind of seems a good thing to do. Uh, and w- while I've preached a, a few one-off sermons from Matthew over the years, I've never preached a series from his Gospel. Uh, but now that time has come as we begin a series on these Gospels recorded for us by Matthew. So the first thing to say about their setting is that the Beatitudes are found in a Gospel. There are four Gospels, but the particular one we're looking at 
uh, over these next weeks will be Matthew's Gospel. Uh, and it's perhaps worth taking a few minutes uh, now just to ask the question, well, what has happened in Matthew's Gospel up to this point? Because that will help us see why Jesus utters these Beatitudes at this particular point in his earthly ministry. So what's been happening so far in Matthew? And is there anything uh, distinctive or, or unique about his gospel? Well, Matthew's gospel has been described as the gospel of the kingdom. Uh, Because it has a particular focus on Jesus as king. That phrase, the gospel of the kingdom, occurs three times in the book itself. The the references are on your handout. Uh, We we, we read uh, that phrase in in chapter 4, verse 23. Uh, It also occurs in chapter 9 and chapter 24. Uh, And so far in Matthew's Gospel, the focus has been on the coming of and the arrival of the King. If you flick back to Matthew chapter 1, you'll see it it starts with the genealogy of the King, the ancestry of the King, including uh, verse 6, David the King. Uh, So this is a, a royal lineage. Then in the rest of chapter 1 and into chapter 2, we have the birth of the king. In chapter 3, we have the herald of the king. In other words, John the Baptist, who declares that the king has come to earth. Chapter 3 finishes with the anointing of the king. In other words, Jesus' baptism, where the Father and Spirit mark him out as the Messiah. In the first part of chapter 4, we have the temptation of the king and his victory over the devil there. Jesus standing up to the devil in the wilderness, uh, the very thing that Adam had failed to do in the garden. From chapter 4, verse 12, we have the king beginning his public ministry. And in verse 23, he proclaims the gospel of the kingdom and heals every disease and affliction. And by the end of chapter 4, great, vast crowds are following him. And now as chapter 5 begins, Jesus goes up a mountain or up into a mountain and begins to teach We may be meant to understand the parallel to Moses going up Mount Sinai to receive the Ten Commandments uh, because later on in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus will correct mistaken views of the law. The Sermon on the Mount is also the first of five big sections of teaching by Jesus in Matthew's Gospel, which uh, some have compared to the five books of Moses. Uh, Either way, I think it's certainly true Jesus is being presented as the true and better Moses. So that's the setting of the Beatitudes. They come in the first of the four Gospels and they come after the King has been born, heralded, anointed, tempted and begun his public ministry. Secondly, today we want to consider the audience. The audience Verse 23 of chapter 4 tells us that Jesus went throughout Galilee. 
According to the Jewish historian Josephus, who lived a generation later, Galilee had 204 cities and villages with a total population of around 3 million. Uh, even if that number seems, even if that number is a bit on the high side, it may be, it's probably a lot higher than what we would have, have expected. Uh, and that's just one region. Uh, and as Jesus goes around that region teaching and healing, his fame spreads e- even beyond there. Uh, by the end of the chapter, w- we've great crowds following him from a much wider geographical spread. The, the Decapolis, the area beyond the Jordan, uh, they were mostly Gentile areas, while the other areas mentioned are Jewish. And as chapter 5 begins, seeing the crowds, Jesus goes up on a mountain. Uh, literally into a mountain, perhaps even simply into the hill country. Uh, And he perhaps finds a a flat place where there was room for everyone and from where his voice will carry. Uh, Luke's Gospel talks about the Sermon on the Plain uh, and here we have the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, But most most people would think that these are the the same two things. And just because one is on a mountain and one is on a plain, it's it's not necessarily describing two different things. It could be be a flat place in a mountainous area. Uh, But Jesus goes up into the mountain and there he sits down. But Jesus doesn't sit down to rest here in chapter 5 verse 1. Because the normal teaching position of a Jewish rabbi was to sit. Uh, We see that, for example, in Luke uh, chapter 4, verse 20. In Luke 4, having earlier stood up in the synagogue in Nazareth to read the scriptures, that must have been the position for reading the scriptures, Jesus sits down. And then we read that the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him and he began to teach. Uh, I would find it pretty hard to to teach sitting down, but that's what the Jewish rabbis did. Our our Old Testament professor at theological college, uh, rather fittingly, he sat down to teach. Um, I I don't think it was a a theological thing uh, just because he was an Old Testament professor, uh, whereas everyone else stood up. But this is what the Jewish rabbis did. They, They sat down to teach. But who is Jesus teaching? Verse 1 tells us that he goes up the mountain when he sees the crowds. and When he sits down, his disciples come to him. So we have the crowds, we have the disciples. Is Jesus teaching the crowd or is he teaching his disciples? Um, uh, I think I, I put on the back of your order of service, some of them printed, is he teaching the crowd of the disciples? But, but it should be, is he teaching the crowd or the disciples? Well, it's important to remember that in any of the Gospels, the word disciple can be used to refer to a far larger group of people than just the 12 disciples. Uh, And we get caught out sometimes when we see that word disciple and and assume that that it's talking about the 12. (coughs) Matthew, in fact, doesn't introduce us to most of, of the 12 disciples until chapter 10. Uh, they, they, they may not, uh, some of them even have been called at this point. 
In Luke 6, 17, which is probably describing the same event, we're told that there was a great crowd of his disciples as well as a great multitude of people. Uh, so, so a great crowd of his disciples is obviously describing more than, than 12. Uh, there were 12 uh, big D disciples, we could say, in the Gospels, but there were many others who were small D disciples, uh, many of whom really were, were just hangers-on. Uh, and here in Matthew, we're told in chapter 7, when the Sermon on the Mount ends, that the crowds were astonished at his teaching. So Jesus is teaching crowds of people here. Uh, whether there is a, a specific focus he intends for his disciples or not, there, there, there's a far greater crowd listening to him. In fact, the very reason for Jesus preaching the Sermon on the Mount at this point in his ministry may be to try and distinguish between who is a true disciple and who isn't. You know, we tend to think, well, well crowds of people are, are good, but, but Jesus wants to distinguish between who, who are there for the right reasons and, and who aren't. Because plenty of people are following Jesus because of his miracles. In crowds of people, there, there are always people there for a whole host of different reasons. But the Beatitudes will spell out what a true follower of Jesus looks like. Some will be attracted by what Jesus says here at the beginning of Matthew 5. Uh, and they'll be saying in their hearts, Yes, this is the life that I want to live by God's grace. But others won't like the sound of this at all and they'll be thinking, well, well, if this is what it means to follow Jesus, you can count me out. Or, or perhaps they'll have understood the Beatitudes in some sort of superficial way and thought, well, yes, I can do all those things. But, but, but once they hear what they involve, they'll, they'll think, no, I, I can't do that. So as Jesus teaches who are the crowds and who are the disciples, well, in a sense, Jesus' very teaching will help answer that question. And it's the same today. Are you part of the crowd or are you a true disciple? One of my prayers is that this series will be helpful in distinguishing in that regard that if you are here in body but not in spirit because you're not saved, that if you're living a life which you think has God's smile on it but actually is a life which will bring down his judgment on you unless you repent, that God would reveal that to you through his word. My prayer is that if what Jesus says it is to be blessed is not a picture of your own life, then you would realise that before it's too late and throw yourself on his mercy. Particularly if you've been under the impression that, that this is the kind of life that you can live in order to gain God's favour. That the Holy Spirit would reveal to you in this series that that is an impossibility. The only way we can know God's favour is if we come to him through Jesus. So that is the audience. It is a, a big crowd. 
And Jesus' very teaching will help reveal who are his true followers and who aren't. So the setting, the audience, thirdly, the preacher, the preacher. The preacher, of course, is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Uh, The eternal Son of God became man and come to earth. He is the one who, in verse 2, opens his mouth and teaches them. To say that he opened his mouth and taught them might seem unnecessary. How else was he going to teach them? In fact, some Bible versions leave out the phrase. They don't see it as needed. But the phrase is used elsewhere in the Bible to introduce teaching which is particularly weighty or solemn. It's a little bit like when we say that we saw something with our own eyes. You know, we could just say, I saw X, because who else's eyes are we going to see it with? But it emphasizes it when we say, I saw it with my own eyes. We should never come lightly to God's word. It is all equally breathed out by God. But phrases like this should remind us uh, that we're coming to something particularly weighty when we come to the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on on the Mount, uh, which the the Beatitudes are the first part of, it's one of the most famous parts of the whole Bible, perhaps the most famous of all. But it's little understood and it's also relatively neglected. We go more naturally, I think most of us, to Jesus' parables or his miracles or his journey to the cross. But on that mountain he opened his mouth and spoke and so we do well to pay attention. And in fact Jesus is still speaking. He's still opening his mouth and speaking each time his word is proclaimed. I was at a funeral during the week of probably the most gifted preacher I've ever heard. And there's a sense in which he being dead still speaks. Because there are so many recordings of his sermons. But the Sermon on the Mount is more than that. It's more than a record of a sermon which was once preached by a man who's no longer with us. Because as we come here each week, first and foremost, the preacher will be Jesus himself. What are ministers? 2 Corinthians 5.20 We are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. God making his appeal through us. That is always the case for for any uh, part of scripture. But perhaps we will be able to realise that more and have a deeper sense of that when our text every week is part of a sermon that Jesus once preached and which he will preach again in this place week by week by his Spirit. How likely would you be to, to miss church if you knew that Jesus himself was going to be the preacher And yet he will be the one preaching here. And the one who spoke these words of blessing 
He wants to bless you. He wants to bless you. Don't be in any doubt what his intention will be each week. As you come here, he wants to bless you, even if that may involve some pain. As Peter put it in Acts 3, speaking of Jesus, God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you to bless you. And then he goes on by turning every one of you from his wickedness. Uh, by, by nature, we don't think that being turned from our wickedness is, is a blessing. We want to hold on to it. But it is a, a blessing. And that is Jesus' intention each week here. And Jesus has, has not just the, the desire to bless you because others ha- have the desire to bless us. But Jesus has the ability to bless you. He, he is the one person who truly can bless you and so even if we are made to feel uncomfortable at times during this series even if the Lord Jesus calls us to a painful stripping away of how we've looked at the world even if we're called to a radical rejigging of our priorities make no mistake that his desire is to bless if he wounds us It will be the wounds of a surgeon, cutting us open in order to remove what's deadly, in order to take out what's stopping us living the life we were created to live. The preacher over these next weeks will be none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. And so if you find yourself thinking, well, well, this is a bit much or this isn't realistic, If I am being faithful to the words of Scripture, then your problem will not be with my words, but with Jesus' words. (coughs) So the setting, the audience, the preacher, fourthly and finally the theme. The theme. Are the Beatitudes random statements or do they have a common theme? To answer that, all we need to do is look at the first one and the last one. The first one in verse 3 ends with the words, the kingdom of heaven. And the last one in verse 10, because verse 11 is really just an an expansion and application of verse 10. Verse 10 also ends with the words, the kingdom of heaven. And because the Beatitudes start with the kingdom of heaven, they end with the kingdom of heaven, it's a clue that everything in between is about the kingdom of heaven. So that's, the, the, that's, that's one question. Another question, what is the kingdom of heaven? And is it different from a similar phrase Matthew uses occasionally as well when he talks about the kingdom of God? And we'll take that second question first. Is there a difference between the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God? Matthew uses both phrases, though mostly he uses kingdom of heaven, whereas the other gospel writers just use the phrase the kingdom of God. And I raise this question because there are some Christians who you may come across their writings or their teachings and they will say that they are different things. Uh, 
But such a distinction just can't stand up to examination. When we look at how the Bible itself actually uses these phrases... For example, if you look at the first beatitude there in verse 3, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Uh, And then if we turn over to Luke 6 verse 20, Jesus says, blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Luke chapter 6 is most likely Luke's account of the same sermon. But either way, Matthew says that the poor in spirit... uh, He says of them, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Uh, Luke says of the poor that theirs is the kingdom of God. Uh, Clearly they're talking about the same thing. There's not a different kingdom uh, in in Matthew as compared to Luke. Or we see the same thing if we compare Matthew with Mark. Matthew records Jesus saying, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Whereas Mark has how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. Uh, The best and simplest explanation is that the gospel writers use different, slightly different phrases because of who they're writing to. Matthew's gospel is particularly focused on Jews, uh, which we can tell from from the the huge amount of Old Testament quotations uh, that he uses. The Jews were very reluctant to use God's name at all in an effort to try and guard against taking God's name in vain. Their their reasoning was, well, if if we never say God's name, we can't take it in vain, uh, which which isn't actually great reasoning, uh, but but that's that's what they that's what they said that's what they still say and and so the Jews would use words like heaven instead of using the name god uh, and so kingdom of heaven is just a way of saying kingdom of god when you're writing to a, a Jewish audience uh, maybe Matthew as a Jew himself that's the way he would have been used to speaking Uh, But Jews would have thought of it as a more reverent way to talk. Uh, Those who try and make a difference between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven uh, are doing so because they want it it to fit into a particular theological system that they have come up with. But the Bible itself won't let us differentiate between the two things. So the kingdom of heaven in Matthew and the kingdom of God in the other Gospels are the same thing. But that brings us back to the question of what is the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God? Uh, We might think that the kingdom of God, and particularly if it's being called the kingdom of heaven, is a a future thing and not something we can experience now. And certainly there is a future aspect to it. But the kingdom of God is not primarily a place. Rather, it is the the rule of God focused in Jesus. Uh, Rather than than a place with geographical boundaries. Later on in Matthew's gospel, Jesus will say, If it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. And since Jesus did cast out demons by the Spirit of God, that means that God's kingdom was already a reality. A reality that God's people could experience when he was on earth. 
Yes, there is a, a future aspect to it as well. We pray your kingdom come, uh, but there is an already aspect as well. Jesus says, Luke seventeen twenty, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. In other words, because Jesus was present, the kingdom of God had come. In Matthew 21, Jesus told respectable religious people that the tax collectors and prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. That didn't mean that the tax collectors and prostitutes were dying first and going to heaven. It meant they were being converted first and so entering the kingdom of God. So to be in the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven is simply to be a Christian. It is to have bowed the knee to Jesus Christ recognizing who he is and giving your life to him so have you done that have you done that because that has to be the starting point trying to live out the sermon on the mount can't save you because you won't be able to do it but if you have bowed the knee to him in repentance and faith if you are already in his kingdom then the Beatitudes are here to show you that life in the kingdom of God requires radically different priorities than those around you. The Christian and the non-Christian belong to two entirely different realms. I'll say that again. The Christian and the non-Christian belong to two entirely different realms. If you are a Christian this morning, you are in this world but not of it you are a citizen of a different kingdom and so you're to live by very different standards because you have a different king you're to march to the beat of a different drum not in order to try and get into this kingdom but because Jesus is your king and you now listen to him And over these next weeks as we come to these words of Jesus, it will be the Holy Spirit's aim to take our hearts off all ideas of earthly blessedness and see what true heavenly blessedness consists in. And not just see it, but be attracted to it more and more to say, this is the life that I want to live by God's grace. But just as we close this morning, Let's never forget that Jesus didn't simply come to tell us what the blessed life is. Rather, he came to die in order that we might be eternally blessed. In a sense, the liberal Jesus, the Jesus of of liberal Christianity, simply came to, to teach what blessing is and how it can be found in following his teaching Whereas the real Jesus, the Jesus of the Bible, came to die in order that we might be blessed. Uh, The real Jesus came because we need to know his blessing. We don't know it by nature. He came to die that we might know God's favour rather than his curse in this life and the next The same Jesus who would go up the mountain to preach about the kingdom of God would also go up to another hill, another mountain called Calvary to give his life there in order that we might enter that kingdom. 
The one who taught about the kingdom is the same one who would give his life in order that we might enter the kingdom. So let's not ever come to think of these beatitudes, these blessings, or or, or let's not come to them without remembering that the same one who pronounced them, the one who was eternally blessed, became a curse for us. And only because of that is a radically different life laid out in the Beatitudes possible for us. Amen. Well, let's respond to what we've heard from God's Word today by singing another psalm which starts with two Beatitudes, Psalm 32. And in a sense, although we are ending with this today, this must be our starting point How blessed is the man to whom has freely pardoned been all the transgression he has done and covered his his sin. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit is not found deceit or treachery. Some Christians indeed write off the whole Sermon on the Mount. Even though it's the most famous part of the Bible, they say it's it's beyond our, our grasp, it's impossible, or, or it's a way of trying to earn God's favour. But it's none of these things. Uh, but, but what they fail to understand is that the new birth has to come first. The new birth has to come first. And then this is the life that God calls us to and enables us to live. Psalm 32, 1-5, we stand to sing praise. <laughs>